Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Come in. Welcome to the Nook. Yes, uh, you're here for a few tales to terrify. Well, this is it. If you're new, I'm Lawrence Santoro. Oh, just shake it off. The, the rain, the mug, yeah. Horrible, huh? Wet heat and fog here by the lakeside. It's not even April yet. Foolish us for enjoying it, hmm? Well, sit. We'll have a few stories and some other things. First... Congratulations to me. I've got a story in an anthology that hit the market today, I believe, out in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, Right about now, my colleagues are drinking, laughing, whooping it up, signing copies of the anthology, Slices of Flesh. Well, maybe not drinking and whooping too much. Uh, Lest you think I'm shilling for this thing, Slices of Flesh, I am. About that, though... uh, Nobody is making any money on it. None of the writers, anyway. After expenses, profits from Slices of Flesh are going to some organizations that are near and dear to all writers' hearts. This includes literacy, reading programs, the Horror Writers Association's Hardship Fund. And I've known a person or two who has availed himself of that service. And to the Stephen and Tabitha King Foundation, the which I mentioned last week. I like that my work in Slices of Flesh is, in a small way, aiding literacy. Literacy is a thing that needs aid. and I I want people to be able to read. It's a grand thing that uh, you come here to listen to others read to you, but face it, it's also good when you go home, curl up, and scare yourself to sleep with a good creepy book of forgotten lore. It's also good personally and for the betterment of our race when information can find its way into your brain by means other than through overproduced multimedia assaults on your central nervous system. A nice quiet book lets you absorb and churn the information inside before you grab your pitchfork and go on a wolf hunt of sorts. Well, Slices of Flesh subtitles itself as a collection of flash fiction from the world's greatest horror writers. Okay. Jack Ketchum, Simon Clark, Brian Keane, Ramsey Campbell, Nancy Holder, Tim LeBon, Nancy Kilpatrick, Graham Masterson, Karen Warren, William F. Nolan. Uh, cripes, William F. Nolan. And it goes on and on. These are wee, tiny tales, many under a thousand words in length, so... A good-sized book, which is what this is, can pack a lot of punch. Uh, There are 90 slices of flesh in this book. It's served up on 329 pages. And cover art, by the way, it's by Mike Mignola. Yes, that Mike Mignola. Hellboy's Mike Mignola. 
and his colorist, Dave Stewart. Well, over the next few weeks, when we have the time, I'll drop in one or two of these little gems. I may even read you my own offering from the book. Yes, I've written a short piece. I'm not a brief fellow, but I can write small occasionally. Slices of Flesh is from Dark Moon Books and was put together by Dark Moon's Stan Swanson. I'll bet you guessed. We're about to have a nibble of a slice, yes? Well, here's our first taste. It's from Tim Laban, and it's called Into the Death Zone. I'd been one of the first to volunteer, so I dragged the corpse down from the death zone toward Everest Base Camp. Could hardly complain. This was an adventure. This was something I'd be able to tell my kids, my grandkids about. This would be written about in the press, a film crew interviewing everyone. A special team was examining each body we managed to retrieve, gathering personal effects, doing their best to contact any next of kin. This was important, and I should have been enjoying it. But the dead were talking to me. First, it might have been the wind playing round my frozen ears or ice crackling in my hair. Maybe it was my breath freezing and dropping into the snow, crystals of unuttered fears. But then I heard my name, Richard. Well, I didn't tell anyone. Such conditions you can hardly admit to something like that. But looking round the camp that evening, I could see at least three others who seemed quiet, withdrawn, their eyes distant. I wanted to talk to one of them, but evening came, and with exhaustion, we all retired early to our tents. The last thing I saw outside was the glaring red bulk of the tent where they kept the corpses. There were varying accounts of how many people had died on Everest, had been left frozen to the mountain's skin, fixed there like dead parasites. Before I volunteered to help retrieve some of them, I'd always wondered at the teams who could leave their dead behind. Huh. It can't be that hard, I thought. But then the mountain had clasped me in its teeth, and I'd come to understand there is no normality in places like this. I was in the wild, at the very edge of survivability. This was a place of extremes where a sprained ankle or a stomach bug could mean a slow, cold, lonely death. I'd heard many stories of climbers leaving wounded companions behind, vowing to return, but sometimes unable to save even their own lives. I imagined that their empty promises of sending help were lost amidst Everest storms forever echoing round the mountain. It gave the wind a haunting lilt. Perhaps it was one of those whispers I had heard. The last day we went up, I travelled with sixteen other climbers. We'd come to know each other quite well during the seven days we'd been working— and it would be a sad final journey off the mountain and away to our separate corners of the globe. It was a strange endurance challenge. Most people ran marathons across the Sahara or cycled across Australia, but we'd all wanted to feel that we were making a difference. 
Nineteen frozen corpses in the red tent paid testament to that. I'd already vowed that I would visit them one more time before leaving, though such snooping was strictly forbidden. We found the body of a German woman that afternoon, frozen into a small cave in the rock face, just where several expeditions had marked on their climbing maps. The researchers at base camp thought she'd been there for at least thirty years, so contacting her relatives would likely be a time-consuming effort. Something for them to do after I was back home, running the hills of South Wales, remembering my great adventure. Perhaps one day I would even... Richard. I looked around at the other climbers. The body was close behind me, bound in canvas now, being towed by two American men. They were quiet, respectful. One of them returned my haunted gaze. I went to ask if he'd heard anything, but a gust of wind stole my words before I even spoke, and a haze of snowflakes blurred my surroundings. The storm came in quickly, and because we'd not anticipated it, getting down safely became a real challenge. I concentrated hard, sweat warming, then cooling my skin inside my lairs. My backpack froze to my coat. Ice picks swinging and spiked boots stamping at the ice. Richard! I looked left and right, but there was only the wind. It spoke again. I could not decipher what it said. All the way down to base camp, through that long afternoon, through all the effort, the slips and stumbles that could have led to injury and death, the wind whispered to me. There was no way to ask anyone else what they were hearing, and by the time we reached camp, collapsed into our tents, I no longer wished to know. Sleep came and took me away, and the frozen German woman haunted my dreams with her half-open eyes. Next morning, when I woke, my kit had been packed and stacked outside my tent. The realization that I was leaving caused a brief panic in me. I had crazy ideas about fleeing the camp, climbing on my own, going as high as I could until the freezing wind and snow ensured that I would remain forever. But I quickly gathered myself. My companions were sitting round the fire pit, hands wrapped round mugs, staring into the flames. Some of them spoke softly, others seemed silent. Everyone was feeling the pull of the mountain much more now that we had to leave. I took a step toward them, then quickly changed direction, head down as if not seeing them meant that they would not see me. I marched across to the closed red tent and ducked inside. The first thing that struck me was the smell. This was not decay or age, but the muggy, warm odor of climbing clothes and sweat-soaked gear that I'd become used to since hiking into the Himalayas. Not unpleasant, I found it a compellingly personal smell. It was honest, human, the bare scent of extreme effort and the will to survive. I smiled, went to speak to whoever else had come into the corpse tent, then I realized no one had. The first man who turned his head was a Sherpa who'd been lost in the higher slopes eighteen years before. 
I could hear the crick of his neck, and his skin had turned leathery and smooth like a china doll's. His eyes were withered, too small for their sockets. He smiled, and I could not understand what he said. Others turned to look at me. One retained very little skin on his or her skull, and I, and I was not sure whether the person smiled. Another was swollen within her bright red coat, the exposed skin on her face black and brittle. They looked at me and welcomed me in. A man raised one hand, offering me something. I stepped forward to find out what. I was not afraid. His had been a more recent tragedy, part of an Indian expedition. He died less than twenty years ago, and his eyes seemed to retain some of their shine. I smiled, and he lifted my hand, turning it over so that I could see the waxy effect of my flesh in the blackened stumps of frost-bitten fingers. From outside I heard the faint sound of crying. But outside the tent was now somewhere else. The dead spoke, and though I could still not understand, I knew that they sounded lost. Perhaps that was the true language of the dead. I sat with them, and the mountain breathed my name one last time. And thank you, Roland. The last time I saw Tim, he and Brian Keene and a few others were chasing each other around the hall and I think out onto the lawn. It was after a gross-out contest at World Horror in Seattle. That's back, by the way. They're going to do it again this year in Salt Lake City. Tim was then vice president of the HWA and, well, well, it's a long time ago. Tim is a Londoner. He now lives in Monmouthshire, South Wales. Uh, he's a New York Times best-selling author with more than 20 novels published, dozens of novellas, hundreds of short stories. His most recent books include The Secret Journeys of Jack London, The Wild, co-authored with Christopher Golden, Echo City, The Island, The Map of Moments, also with Christopher Golden, and Bar None. He's won four British Fantasy Awards, a Bram Stoker Award, and a Scribe Award. He's been a finalist for the International Horror Guild, Shirley Jackson, and World Fantasy Awards. Fox 2000 recently acquired the film rights to The Secret Journeys of Jack London. Several more novels and novellas of his are in development, and you can meet Tim at his website, www.timlebon.net. That's T-I-M-L-E-B-B-O-N.net. And thank you again, Roland, for reading that for us. Last week, I took part, a very small part, in an event here in Chicago to honor Gene Wolfe. Gene was being given the first of what will be an annual award by the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame. It's called the Henry Blake Fuller Award, and it acknowledges his outstanding lifetime contribution to literature. 
lifetime. Well, that sounds a bit too final for Jean. As you'll hear, Jean had just that week finished his latest novel and sent it off to his editor. The ceremony was a day-long and into-late-evening thing that included readings, a play based on Jean's story, the toy theater, music, great food, and merry-go-round rides for everyone, toasts, speeches by Gary K. Wolfe, Neil Gaiman, and, and Jean. Jean's acceptance of the Fuller Award, I thought, was just too good to not play here, so here it is. Yes. I've got like two dozen friends who came here for this, and I would hope to insult all my friends in my talk. And I think there's too many of them to do it. Uh, my brother Gary K. Wolf is here, and he, he, he spoke. Spoke glowingly of me, you know, and all that. Uh, he always explains, not always, he didn't do it this time. He usually explains to audiences that we are not, in fact, related. And this is wonderful for me because I sit in the back, and when he does it, I say, I'm going to tell Mom. <laughs> and he blanches. He really does. He blanches. He goes white. Oh, man. Just a few days ago, I finished a new novel. I'm going to start on this, and if it doesn't work, I'll throw it away. Uh, you know, I don't care that much about it. Uh, a few days ago, I finished a new novel and sent it off to the agency, and I'm still a little dizzy with the vast relief of the whole thing. I feel like a man who has carried a millstone for years and now finds hope that the millstone may someday carry him. About a year ago, my car was broken into. When I parked, when we parked here, uh, that's Alan and Terry and grandchildren and Cassie and whole gang, really, of us. Uh, we had to put some people in the trunk. That, that's an old Chicago tradition. <laughs> it works all right, you know. Uh, You see, I'd parked my car and locked it and walked away into the jewel, leaving my unfinished manuscript in a box on the back seat. The time was about 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night, I believe. When I came out, I found that the worst possible thing had occurred. Somebody had smashed the rear window of my car, and there beside my unfinished manuscript, he had left an unfinished manuscript of his own. <laughs> I had two. <laughs> Years ago, I used to see a comic strip called Kudzu. I believe it ran in the trib in those days. Kudzu was a Georgia boy who wanted to become a writer. He used to sit around practicing signing his name to get into shape for book signings. I never did that, but I used to practice telling people what a writer's life was like. I didn't... I don't mean the truth, of course. Uh, instead, I dreamed up all manner of glorious affairs like this one, which I then recounted into pain, in painstaking detail to imagined questioners who looked and sounded an awful lot like me. 
They believed everything I told them and wanted to know about my work habits and whether I favored a quill pen. Neat stuff like that. Now the honest truth is that I don't have any work habits, which is one reason that it takes me so long to finish a book. When Rosemary and I moved to the southern, from southern Ohio into Barrington, our family consisted of ourselves and four small children. It's terribly hard to write in a little house that holds four small children. If I had been smart, I would have bought a house with a detached garage. And then, when I needed to work, I could just step into the garage, barricade the door, take my seat on the snowblower, and write. <laughs> now, the right thing, that last passage there, gives you the answer. Hmm, I'm all screwed up in this. No wonder it doesn't make sense. Now, that right there, that last paragraph, gives you the answer to one of my favorite questions. Why do you write? That question's a dinger. And I feel almost certain that someday somebody will really ask it. I write because if I didn't, people would ask why I didn't work. <laughs> Let me explain. Back, back when our kids were small and a new school year was about to get going, my wife was after me for money for school clothes. I told her that was a good and reasonable thing to spend money on. And I would give her some for that purpose, only we didn't have any. And she kept after me, of course. The children's clothes were old. They had been playing in them all summer. They had gone down to the horse field and picked up road apples on pointy sticks and thrown them at one another. And she'd had to wash Terry off with the garden hose and so forth. I explained to her that these things did not create money where there was no money. I had paid the mortgage and the phone bill and the water bill and the electric bill and the garbage bill. And I had gotten the car fixed at that little garage in the middle of town where it had been stabled all night next to an Aston Martin. There was no money. I don't believe my wife believed that part about the Aston Martin, but it had been stone true. And once more, I had written a little story about it called Car Sinister. In my story, our car, a Rambler wagon, had been impregnated by the Aston Martin. <laughs> Those of you who have owned pregnant automobiles will know what happens next. Much to my surprise, that story sold to a magazine which sent me a check for $80. $80 bought a sight more then than it does now because all this happened before most of you were born. Then when I got a big check like that, I usually hurried to the bank so I could deposit it, the, the check, not the bank, so I could deposit it before one of my own checks bounced. In this case, I didn't do that. I went to the hardware store and talked the main hardwareizer into giving me four $20 bills. Now, I know many of you are not going to believe this part, but when I got home, I gave those four $20 bills to Rosemary here, I said, is every dime I got for that story. That's how much you've got for school clothes. Skip ahead a few days. I am sitting on the kitchen floor wrestling with the kitchen chair. The legs are loose and the rungs are falling out. 
and I am trying to work white school glue into the joints and tie the whole thing up with rope, putting pressure on the joints until the school glue dries. It was real work, believe me, and the sweat was running down into my eyes. <clears throat> Rosemary comes up behind me, watches me for a minute, and says, shouldn't you be writing? <laughs> right there you have it. <laughs> Writing is easier than working. <laughs> Assuming you don't have work habits. I am not a smart man, but I learned something that day that I have never forgotten. Well and good, but how can anybody write in a house with four small children? They are always borrowing paper clips. <clears throat> Pardon me. I talk too much. <clears throat> Every once in a while it comes back and bites me. They're always borrowing paper clips to make chains and scotch taping the dog. The answer I found was to write early in the morning while the small children were sleeping it off. Naturally, I was half asleep myself, which accounts in many cases for what critics call my style. <laughs> also, Rosemary was always hollering down the stairs, how many strips of this bacon do you want? You know, stuff like that. If you read one of my books and all of a sudden one of the characters says he didn't write Shakespeare, I know he didn't, he couldn't find a stamp. Then you'll know what went on. Another question I like to pretend people ask me is, why do you waste so much of your time writing this book? People like that don't know as much as Paul Anderson's little daughter. Paul told me about this. And he was proud of his daughter and he had every right to be. Paul was, working through his, was walking through his dining room when he saw his little daughter crying over her homework. He stopped and asked her what was the matter. She said, it's this, Daddy. And she held up one of those mimeograph sheets that they pass out in school. We're reading Tom Sawyer, and I've got to answer these questions. This one, she broke off to sob a little here, is number nine. It says... What do you think the author's purpose was in writing this book? Daddy, I know, but what am I going to tell the teacher? <laughs> Neil Gaiman presented me with this award. <laughs> and Neil is one of the finest writers this world has ever known. He's an Englishman, but we've got to forgive him for that. <laughs> He couldn't help it. He is a wonderful father to his children and a world traveler who phones me up from impossible places and sends me postcards. He is the only man I have ever known who got his pocket picked because there weren't enough mermaids around to protect him. <laughs> That's the truth. You, you, you think I, I'm making this up. No, all I have to do is tell the truth and you'll think I'm making it up. That's the kind of person Neil is. <clears throat> he has been to China and knows where all the outlets are in the Great Wall. <laughs> He's been to Japan, where they blinded him for three days with flashbulbs. Well, now, one day he called me from Shangri-La and told me he wanted to write a book about a Chicago neighborhood. What is your purpose in writing this book, I asked him. <laughs> I want to help the ones who need it, he told me. What I've got in mind is either a dictionary 
or an almanac or one of those books that tell you how to get around and stay on the streets with lots of mermaids. We'll go with a travel book, I decided. What you don't understand, Neil, is that there are books that you make funny, and then there are books that God made funny from the start. Travel books are funny all by themselves. All we have to do is add to that. You're right, he told me. First time this year. That's what he said. How about a Chicago neighborhood like the stockyards? You must know lots about Chicago neighborhoods. Not so many, I said. Only the ones Roy used to live in until they wanted him to pay the rent. And the ones Terry lived in. Did I ever tell you about that old wooden house that had Terry on the middle floor and the fat couple up on the top floor? Yes, and it used to be funny, Neil. What about the stockyard? I said we ought not to do that one because there were real people living there and the cows would write letters to the newspapers telling all the stuff we got wrong. So Neil said the shambles, because the shambles is like a place where you slip on the floor and sort of wonder why everybody that works there will rid today, even you. Well, we wrote it, and both of us put our good ideas into it, especially Neil. I believe Valia means to hand out the copies to you, to those of you who don't make a lot of trouble. The clocks are Neil's, and so are the other funny parts. My editor, Mr. David G. Hartwell, is here somewhere, but I, I, I would have sworn he got bored and left. <laughs> I had uh, meant to insult him quite a bit in this speech, but now he's got that new novel, which he can turn down out of meanness if he wants to. <laughs> Somebody who talks a lot better than me once said that when a publisher wants to hire a fast gun, he gets David Hartwell. I'd have said that first if I'd thought of it. I think Jennifer Stevenson's here. Oh, there, there, okay. I thought I heard you moan a couple of times at puns. Yeah. One of the good things about that Chicago did for me when I moved here was to let me meet some other writers, among whom Jennifer is Exhibit A. She holds a pig roast every year. A pig roast is a party where everybody insults the pig, and then the pig gets to stand up and insult you back. If you think you've never been to one, you don't get the idea. <laughs> Joe and Rebecca Bushong Taylor are here, having driven all the way from Maryland, they are readers, which is better than writers. I used to be afraid to insult Rebecca because she carried a big stick. <laughs> now I'm afraid to insult her because she doesn't need the big stick anymore. <laughs> of course, Joe and I insult each other whenever we feel like it, and then he tries to sell me a car. <laughs> Mark Aramini is here, too. Where's Mark? Oh. Oh, He's, he's hiding behind the scenery up there. Mark, you you are up there. Okay, all righty. Stand up, will you? Okay, all righty. There, okay. Mark Aramini is here, having flown all the way from Arizona. I don't insult him either. 
I used to box a little when I was young, and I have seen pictures of him in the ring, and he would have scared me green. Now I wish I could keep going, insulting our wonderful host and my new friend Valiant, and my old friends Bill and Jody, but I have almost run out of time. Uh, the truth is that you are all my friends, whether I know your names or not. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your friendship and for being who you are. That sounds like I'm finished, but I'm not. <laughs> I wanted to say that Leo Spector is here, which surprised me because I tried to get him, get him to give him a ticket, and I didn't know they'd done it, but they did. And I've got grandchildren here by the bushel. Well, no, three of them. That's all I've got. All the grandchildren I've got are here. And, uh, oh, Lord. More people, Michael Swanwick, and more people than I can think of. Patrick O'Leary and Sandy, who I just met for the first time. And I can't think our host sufficiently for allowing us to use this venue, which is marvelous beyond belief. I think it's the venue above other venues that only the seat people who know the secret word get into. <laughs> it is something else, isn't it? So I could go on and on. Uh, in case I'm running too short, has anybody got questions? <laughs> There's an adjective that belongs in that sense. The word is crazy. You say, where did I get, where do you get your crazy ideas? Uh, and of course, the answer is Schenectady. You, you, I thought everybody knew that. There, there's, there's a service in Schenectady, and you send them $20 a month, and they send you an idea every month, a crazy idea. And, uh, you know, you're set. All you got to do is write that idea and get it finished before the next idea comes. But if it comes, you haven't finished yet, then you take that next idea and you stick it in on page 19 or whatever. <laughs> uh, wherever it looks like it might be more or less at home. That's, that's the way it is with ideas. Uh, if you need one, they will grow. If you don't need one, they won't. It's all barren. Any more questions? <laughs> What's a new book about? It's about a, a strange Eastern European country. Uh, Valya is an expert on those, and uh, I should have had her for a resource when I wrote it, but I didn't have her around then. I should have. Little uh, Eastern European country, and a young American goes there with the idea of writing a travel book. And need I say, I see our host back there. Thank you again, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. And of course, he gets into all sorts of trouble. And I won't go into that. Those are what we call plot complications.
And you, you, you know, you start off by writing page one, and then you write page 500, and then you start figuring out what am I going to do to keep these apart? I've got to got to fill in all this stuff, and so you get plot complications. They they drop in there, and everything works. Anybody else? What, what? what was the most difficult book for you to write? The most difficult to write? This one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I worked for, uh, I started this in 2009 and finished it like yesterday. You know. <laughs> uh, well, mon Monday I sent it to the agency. Okay, I'm not going to ask for any more questions because I'm afraid that I would get them if I did. <laughs> so I'll say goodbye. Not well. I've got lots of photos on the Tales to Terrify Facebook page, so stop by and have a look. This was a wonder of an event, and if you've never seen Neil Gaiman on a carousel, now's your chance. For more information, stop by at chicagoliteraryhof.wordpress.com. And by the way, I adapted the play based on the toy theater. It was performed by a Chicago company, Terra Mysterium. They did a great job. We couldn't record the piece then, but we hope it will be performed again in a month or so. If and when it is, I hope we can grab a good recording of it then. And if so, I might cast it up here. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Part three of this evening's Visit to the Nook will feature another ramble with Mike Allen and friends as they take us on a tour of the abattoir. Here's Mike and special guest Shallon Hurlbut. Tonight, they'll—oh, hell, they'll tell you all about it.
Hello there, Tales to Terrify listeners. I'm Mike Allen, and I'm pleased to welcome you to another installment of Tour of the Abattoir. In this month's column, I'm going to demonstrate the value of friendship, especially friendship with others who share one's taste for offbeat horror. I have more book reviews coming up for you, I swear I do, including a pair of anthologies, Cheshire Burke's Let's Play White, her debut short story collection published last year by Apex Books, and a collection self-published on Amazon by too often overlooked horror writer Charles Saplack, quiet yet also wrong. However, as it happens, I'm so buried in projects and deadlines that I don't have time to set aside to read any books at all at the moment. So, I'm going to introduce something that might well become a permanent occasional feature in this space. And also, I'd like to introduce a good friend here in Roanoke who is helping me keep this space occupied. Shallon Hurlbert and I met in 2010, and we were introduced by H.P. Lovecraft. My short story, Her Acres of Pastoral Playground, which you can listen to in the October 27, 2011 Starship Sofa, was published in the anthology Cthulhu's Reign that year, and the library here in the city of Roanoke, Virginia, decided to hold an event centered around Lovecraft as a way of showcasing my story. Shallon's a librarian and a huge fan of Lovecraft, and he ended up helping out my presentation by selecting clips from obscure Lovecraftian films that we played during the show to add a little pizzazz. It turned out, too, that he was a big fan of podcasts like Starship Sofa, and he was even familiar with the recordings of my horror story, The Button Bin, which you can hear in the April 2nd, 2009 Starship Sofa, by the way. And how could I resist someone who was a fan of my own writing? Uh, needless to say, that sealed the deal. Shallon turns out to have a knack for digging up obscure horror movies that ought to be classics. Part of my goal in this column is to shine a spotlight on treasures you might not have otherwise heard of. So he and I hit on the idea of watching some of these strange little-known films together and reporting back to you on what we thought. For our first outing, we picked Marabito a curious bit of J-horror, with some Lovecraftian overtones. Marabito is a 2004 film by Takashi Shimizu, who is much better known for the films in his Juwan series, referred to in English as The Grudge. While the Juwan films are, in their way, straightforward ghost stories, Marabito dabbles in both cosmic horror and subjective states of reality, Two things that go together, like peanut butter and jelly. Shallon is a fan of Marabito, while I wasn't entirely impressed, but I have to admit it had its moments. But it's probably best if you just listen for yourself. So here we go. Hi, folks. We're now recording the quote live, unquote, portion of this column, and I am here with Shallon Hurlbert, my buddy who has all sorts of expertise in obscure horror films that he and I are both quite happy to share with you. And we have just watched a movie that Shallon selected called Marabito, created by the fellow who was the mastermind of the Juan The Grudge movies. Shallon, what made you decide to select this film? Well, 
when we first started to talk about doing this, I tried to think of the best Lovecraft-related films that we could watch, and I was trying to find obscure films as well, and Marabito is one that I accidentally ran across while living in Bellingham and, and spending most of my spare time trying to find good movies to watch with my wife. Interesting. Now, I'll, I'll confess, I mean, we both just read the same description, sort of drawing a, a, a connection to uh, Lovecraft's uh, The Outsider. And what book was that again? The Outsider? The, no, the book that we just looked at. Oh, Lurker in the Lobby. Lurker in the Lobby draws a connection between this film and Lovecraft's short story, The Outsider. Now, I admit, having just seen this movie, that's not necessarily a connection that I would have made. Me neither. But uh, definitely, there's a lot to there's 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 a lot that is interesting about this film. If you are a fan of J horror, for certain, there's there's a lot of a lot of stuff to like. But it requires some patience starting out because it unfolds in a somewhat slow and surreal way, and there's a sequence that takes place in what is supposed to be the, the underworld, and this ends up being something that you sort of have to give the filmmakers if you want to be a kind of giving viewer, as uh, it's done very low budget, and uh, actors who are supposed to be ghosts are obviously just actors standing there. But once you get past that and let the movie get itself set up, it, it gets quite fascinating. I don't know. I kind of like the uh, ghosts as people so that they're they're unable to be distinguished from humans. And that's part of uh, of what was scary about that first ghost. Kuroka, I think his name is. Right. It's the ghost of the man who commits suicide at the beginning of the film. And he sort of guides our main character down to this underworld. And once it's revealed to him that the main character witnessed his death he says oh well then i shouldn't you shouldn't be able to see me and he blows out the lantern and everything goes into complete darkness so that is a very nice touch right and i don't know if it's more dependent on the budget that they had to work with or the special effects that were available to them but i really liked the indistinguishable ghosts and live people. I, I have mixed feelings about that, but I, I want to move on. Uh, once this setup has occurred, our narrator, our narrator, this photographer who has become so drawn into himself that apparently he can only relate to the world through his video camera, finds a young woman uh, naked, chained in a little alcove in this underworld, and he he brings her back up to his apartment. This is this is another point in the movie where you have to kind of you you're either going to run with this leap of logic that this is what a character's response would be in the situation or not. But nonetheless, this is what happens, and then uh, we begin to find out a bit of the nature of this young woman. Uh, we established early on that she's likely not human, or if she is human, she has regressed to a significantly bestial state. And then... Including uh, physically. Yes. It's exposed that she has uh, large, or enlarged canines, and her eyes are completely black. Right. 
And probably if you're an experienced horror viewer, it is not going to surprise you uh, to learn that she has no interest in any of the food or drink he offers her, but is very interested in blood. Uh, in fact, if you're someone who has a fetish for Japanese women noisily sucking on baby bottles filled with blood, this is the movie for you, and you need to go out and get it right now. <laughs> uh, however... She spends a significant portion of the movie sucking on baby bottles, wrists, fingers. It, it's a little... Uh... It, it's, it's, it's a somewhat more eroticized version of the relationship between uh, Seymour and Audrey in A Little Shop of Horrors. Right. Uh, however, once you get past this more over-the-top part and everything is in place, I think the movie then becomes a very interesting sort of combination gruesome relationship exploration, psychological drama. There's a lot of questions that start to get raised. Is, has this photographer uh, invented this whole situation in his mind to cover up for something else that's really going on? Or is he, in fact, faced with the reality that he has gone and collected a vampire from the underworld and is losing his mind because of it? Yeah, I, what I take from it after thinking about it for a while is that when he does initially pick up the girl who's called F, he brings her back to his apartment, but that entire sequence is, happens off scene or off camera. When you start to think about whether or not this stuff is happening in his mind or in reality, some of these jump cuts that are made sort at really add to the mystery of that it, did he really bring a woman up from the underworld or was she someone who was already living with him or someone he found above ground and and we don't get to see where that comes from or is she really someone that he smuggled in naked through the streets of tokyo into his apartment at night hints are given throughout the movie that his mental state is not exactly on the up and up at times, for no apparent reason, his surroundings start to develop the lines you see in the video when we know that objectively that he's not at that moment filming anything. Right. Faces get staticky. And there's a particular scene where he's walking through downtown filming, and the faces that are shown to the viewer are all digitally... Um, distorted so that they look like they're uh, out of focus or lost fidelity. And when we see through the camera that he's carrying, they look perfectly fine. And he does mention several times the fact that he feels like the only real vision he has is through the camera and, and what the camera tells. It's definitely an art house Japanese horror movie. There's a moment toward the end that I kind of wish we could have seen a little bit more of in the movie. Uh, it's humorous. Uh, you see, uh, you see the photographer and this vampire, this young vampire woman in the mall, and she is sucking on her baby bottle full of blood, and he is sitting beside her with a little cup of what I'm guessing is ice cream, trying to eat it and not quite able to bring himself to do it because of the distraction of what she is doing. It's quite hilarious. 
Right. It's, it's, it's a rare moment when the movie does not take itself just dead seriously. Unfortunately, it might be trying to take itself very seriously in that scene because there's a sort of a weird, dark, becloaked figure that sort of follows him around and contacts him and makes it clear that he wants him to do something with F, tame her in some way. And the scene really points out how ineffectual the cameraman is at interacting with her on any kind of human level. And he's got her dressed, but he still ties her hand to his with some kind of a a scarf and drags her through this mall without talking to her or interacting with her. And then ends the day sitting on this bench, like Mike said, eating ice cream and watching her suck blood out of this baby bottle. Well, not quite able to eat the ice cream. Right, right, yeah. (laughs) Well, I took that that as a humorous moment. Um, It is funny, regardless of whether it's meant to be or not. On the whole, though, I found at the end... You know, at the beginning I was a bit iffy, but I found at the end that I was glad that I had seen this movie. There's a lot of neat, disturbing images and concepts kind of being bounced around in it. I just took it as one of these movies where you you have to be generous with it at points and kind of let it have a pass, and then you can get to the good parts relatively unsullied. It's a very unique movie. I didn't remember quite what the movie was about. I'd seen it, like I said, a long time ago. And my memory had, had painted it as much more of a serious film about this guy bringing an alien creature up from underground, not being able to handle it, and then himself being dragged back down under by her. And none of the weird psychological, is it in his head, is it real, how much of it could be related to his family, if he has one. Not to mention the sexual fetishizing. (laughs) Right, right. None of that really rang through to me uh, after years of not having seen it. But having seen it again, now that I, I realize once again that these themes are in there, I think it adds a little bit to uh, to the watching of it. But at the same time, I was a little disappointed because I really wanted it to be more about this person's interaction with something so alien and human at the same time and how it changed him. But it's still a good movie. Let me just toss in one more thing, because we've mentioned that this is J-horror. Now, I mentioned earlier that uh, in the beginning we have some ghosts who who basically just look like, to me, the actors standing there. But now, toward the end of the movie, after some murders have occurred, we begin seeing the type of ghosts that one expects from the maker of Julon, and I have to say, they were still very creepy. And it was interesting, too, that they appeared almost as conventions, in a way. It, as, it's, almost as if, it's almost as if, well, we expect to see ghosts of this nature once something like this has happened in a Japanese horror movie, and here they are. Nonetheless, they're creepy. If you're talking about the weird amphibious men... You know? No, I'm, well, them I wasn't so impressed by. I'm talking about the ghosts of the murdered women. Right, right, yeah. They do start to show up, and they hover behind him or appear only through his camera as pale, eyeless apparitions. And they they did make it a little scarier, I think, but I'm still, I still like the the spirits as 
as people aspect. Kind of a magical realist touches. Right. Yeah. All right. We'll concede that. <laughs> Near the end, I mentioned the, the weird frog amphibious people. They, they mentioned throughout the film the Darrows and how it stands for degenerate robots or detrimental robots. And I'm not exactly sure why they made that particular uh, leap, but what they turn out to be are bizarre subterranean humanoid people with pale skin, green spots, uh, all the, the sort of normal alien appearance that you'd find in, like, even Star Trek or something. But they do have one very creepy aspect, and that is the sound that they make is like um, like whale song. And rather than being that calming, beautiful thing that whale song usually is, it ends up being like the signal that something alien is going on. He hears it when he's down in the Undercity, which he calls the Mountains of Madness, by the way. And um, he hears it on the telephone when it rings for no reason and there's no one on the other end. It's very a very interesting use of, of sound to project that kind of weird alien fear. The sound was cool. The guys just sort of looked like men in leotards to me. <laughs> right, right. Like I said, it was, it's fairly typical frogman kind of thing. At any rate, I'm I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that we were able to share this little mutual review myself and Shallon of sitting here in his house talking to you about this strange movie you perhaps I've never heard of before, but I do recommend you check out. This is going to be the conclusion of the live portion of this column. Until next time we do it. Say goodbye, Shallon. Goodbye, Shallon. And there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed my little back and forth with Shallon. By the way, Shallon is a huge fan of Tony C. Smith, so I'm proud to be facilitating his first appearance on one of Tony's podcasts. Because I won't be out from under deadline for the secret novel project I'm working on until mid-April, Shallon will be back next month, and we'll be talking about Czech filmmaker Jan Schwankmeyer's truly demented reimagining of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, plus a couple of other gruesome bits of material. And so, until then, stay scared. Thanks, Mike and Shallon. I'm looking forward to your take on Jan Svankmeyer's Alice. Uh, Svankmeyer's probably my favorite animator in all the world, and I'm happy we're helping to get his name out. Finally, uh, this is a story I've been anxiously awaiting. It's called Silvery Moon, and it's by Bev Vincent. Bev is a Canadian who lives in Texas, a chemist by training and the author of The Road to the Dark Tower, the Bram Stoker Award-nominated companion to Stephen King's Dark Tower series. He also authored the Stephen King Illustrated Companion, which was nominated for a 2010 Edgar Award and a 2009 Bram Stoker Award. His books have been translated into Dutch, Russian, Italian, Bev has had short fiction in places like Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, From the Borderlands, and The Blue Religion. In 2010, his story, The Bank Job, won the Al Blanchard Award. He's contributing editor with Cemetery Dance Magazine and a member of the Storyteller's Unplugged blogging community. Here is... Silvery Moon by Bev Vincent.
Ed is basking in the silvery light of the full moon when he hears the distinctive sound of a tent zipper nearby. He crouches behind a cluster of bushes and watches. In his present condition, it makes little difference which of his traveling companions appears. Any of them will satisfy his bloodlust better than the rabbits and deer he's been stalking. The man who clambers out of the red two-person tent might as well be an elephant for all the noise he makes. He rises to his feet, stretches, scratches his crotch, and staggers toward the nearby trees, presumably to relieve himself. A low growl forms in the back of Ed's throat. He tilts his head back a few degrees to catch a hint of his prey among the other delectable scents that permeate the mountain air. The matted hair covering his arms prickles as he flexes his curled fingers in anticipation. He bides his time until the man lumbers into the shadows before emerging from cover to take up pursuit. In the daylight, his prey towers over Ed by several inches and outweighs him by at least fifty pounds. But the night is Ed's domain, especially when the moon is full. His movements are fluid, efficient. His feet make no sound, even though the ground is covered with twigs and nettles. His heart rate accelerates and his eyes focus on his target, to the exclusion of all else. Once he has closed the distance between them, he leaps. The man grunts when Ed knocks him to the ground, rolls him onto his back, and pins him. His eyes widen when Ed's face looms before him, transformed as it is into a snarling mask of abject fury and raw hunger. Only a strangled gasp comes out when the man opens his mouth. He struggles beneath Ed, but to no avail. Ed rakes his right hand down the man's face, clawing through flesh and muscle. The man cries out. The horror Ed senses in his victim sends adrenaline coursing through his veins. He shows the terrified man a mouthful of teeth before lowering his head. Blood splashes his face and squirts between his lips when he opens an artery in his victim's neck. The man squirms as the realization of impending doom kicks in. He rests one hand free and scratches at his attacker. But Ed is prepared. He's been through this many times before. He recaptures the flailing arm and howls in triumph, feeling his victim's strength ebb. Blood jets out in diminishing spurts that reflect the slowing of the man's heart. When it's all over, the man's eyes remain fixed open and glassy, forevermore astonished by the final sight they registered. Ed claws at the ground and pushes around dead leaves and fallen branches to cover the evidence of his kill before dragging the carcass into the woods. Then he feeds. When the morning sun crests the Beartooth Mountains, illuminating the interior of his blue nylon pup tent, Ed's consciousness drifts gradually to the surface. His entire body aches, more than two days of hiking can account for. He rolls onto his stomach, grasping at the remnants of a dream that flashes through his mind like scenes captured by a strobe light, but the details elude him. Eventually he gives up. At least he's in his tent and not huddled on the ground beneath a stand of pine trees. Stranger things have happened. He unzips his sleeping bag and throws back the flap, letting the crisp morning air embrace his naked body. He becomes aware of a burning sensation on his left forearm. He probes the spot and winces when his fingers encounter a raw wound. Sucking air through clenched teeth, he raises his arm before his face and gapes. Clotted blood surrounds a quartet of shallow scratches about three inches long. 
Hindered by the tent's close confines, he rolls onto his side and fumbles for his clothing, locating first his boots, then his jeans, socks, and underwear. After donning them, he searches for his t-shirt. There aren't many places it could be. Eventually, it turns up, wadded at the bottom of his sleeping bag. The blood staining the white shirt didn't come from the scratches on his arm. There's too much of it. The shoulder features a vivid splatter. Several hand-painted splotches, still damp to the touch, obscure the image of the front. Opus the Penguin He can't tell if the blood is from an animal or a person. If it's human, then to whom does it belong? One of his companions or someone else he encountered in the woods last night? Ed scrutinizes his fingers. They're clean except for a small crimson stain on one fingernail, which he licks away. He must have cleaned up before returning to the tent. There's no way to wash the blood out of his shirt, though. Not out here in the wilderness. He'll have to dispose of it when the others are distracted. He puts on a denim shirt that he normally wears in the evenings when the air turns cool. Its long sleeves cover the scratches on his arm. He runs his fingers through his hair before performing a closer examination of the clothing he wore the previous day. He detects bloodstains on his jeans that he overlooked at first, and finds another splatter mark on one of his new hiking boots. Wetting the tail of his blood-stained t-shirt with water from his canteen, he wipes off his boot and does his best with his jeans. The damp stains look like chocolate or coffee when he's finished. A couple of days on the trail have left the hikers looking scruffy, so he doubts anyone will notice. Someone outside the tent calls his name. He crams the soiled shirt into a side compartment of his backpack, where he can get at it quickly if the opportunity arises. Then he unzips the tent door and sticks his head out into the bright morning. Three people are gathered in front of his tent. Mike's brow is furrowed. Krista has her arm wrapped around Jill's waist, as if she's afraid her friend might collapse. Have you seen Paul? Mike asks. We thought he might be with you. He frowns in an attempt to mimic the right blend of concern and confusion. What, in here? He hopes the wave of elation that washes over him doesn't show. Paul is nemesis. He's gone, Jill says, her voice thin and unsteady. When I woke up a while ago, he, he wasn't there. I thought he went out to, you know, take a leak or something, but then he didn't come back. She's wearing a thin tank top and flowered pajama bottoms, nothing else. Ed studiously maintains eye contact, resisting the urge to ogle her body. How long since you noticed he was gone? Jill's hair caresses her neck when she shakes her head. Almost an hour. And you thought he might be with me? The words come out sharper than he intends. Well, out getting firewood or something. I, I woke Krista first, then we got Mike up. Ed hears what Jill isn't saying. He's their last resort. Even before this trip, he and Paul didn't get along. Dealing with rugged terrain, persistent flies, and half-cooked food hasn't improved matters. For the past two days, they sniped at each other constantly until the others pleaded with them to call a truce, at least until they got home. When they shook, a pretense everyone recognized for what it was, holding back a sneer wasn't easy. How a troglodyte like Paul ended up with Jill defies explanation. What should we do? Krista asks. You can't have gone far, Mike says. They fan out and search the area near the campground. About twenty yards to the east, Ed sees faint signs of a struggle and drag marks leading into the woods, but his traveling companions don't notice. 
When he feels like he can break free for a few moments, he returns to the spot and scuffs the ground with his feet, completing the task he obviously started during the night. Then he catches up with the others again. When Mark sees Ed approaching, he asks, You don't think he just left, do you? Got pissed about something and took off? Ed resists the urge to criticize Paul. Instead, he just says, Maybe. Jill calls out Paul's name every few minutes, but all that does is scare the birds, which take flight from the bushes and trees. Her voice grows hoarse. What happened to him? She asks of no one in particular. Maybe a wild animal got him, Mike says. Krista swats him. What? Jill bursts into tears, and Krista goes to console her, while Mike rubs his shoulder and shakes his head at Ed as if to ask, What did I do? Ed conceals a grin. Mike is right. A wild animal did get Paul. He could offer alternate explanations, though. People disappear out here all the time. There are deep ravines and water-slick rocks. Moose have been known to gore people, and grizzly bears and cougars stalk the forests. Searchers with dog teams do steady business seeking out missing hikers, a process akin to looking for a person hiding in a closet somewhere in Denver. Their success rate at finding missing hikers alive is low. Paul's disappearance will be written off as just another of the many mishaps for which the area is known. The group spreads out as they expand their search. Once the others are out of sight, Ed heads back to their campsite, nestled in a wide clearing beside the trail. He builds a small fire in the rock-lined circle around which their tents are clustered. Once the flames take hold, he sets his t-shirt on fire and watches its ashes merge with those from the previous night's bonfire. He tries again to remember his nocturnal activities. Did he stalk Paul, or did fate deliver the man into his hands? If Jill had emerged from the tent instead of her insipid lover, would Ed have dragged her into the underbrush instead, tearing her lovely, delicate flesh, ripping into her firm, succulent breasts? He shudders at the thought, but he doesn't know how his mind works when he's under the moon's influence. The day is getting warmer, so Ed swaps his long-sleeved shirt for a fresh t-shirt. He carefully washes the dried blood from the marks on his arm, applies peroxide from his first aid kit, and covers the wound with a bandage. Then he puts out the fire and heads back into the woods. With Paul gone, Ed might stand a chance with Jill. Though she apparently favors the muscle-bound oafish type, she might turn to him for comfort. He would hold her in his arms and let her hands rest on his chest. What kind of name is that, anyway? Paul said to him the previous day when they were halfway up a steep climb. Ed Wynn. It's like in Ed McBain's books. You know, the guy with the same first and last name. What do you mean? Krista asked. Don't you see? Ed Wynn. Edwin. You take Ed and put it with his last name, and you get Edwin, his first name. He explained this in the patronizing tone geeks use with people who can't understand relativity or string theory, even though Paul would never be mistaken for a rocket scientist himself. At that moment, Ed's loathing for Paul deepened to hatred. Not for making fun of his name, that was just childish, but for how he spoke to Krista. She isn't the brightest bulb in the candelabra, but she's sweet and doesn't deserve to be treated with disrespect, especially by someone like Paul. He's not sorry Paul is dead. He just wishes he could remember the last moments of the man's pitiful life, his look of terror, the taste of his flesh. What happened to your arm? Jill asks after he rejoins the group. She looks drained and her eyes are red. That's nothing. Ed touches the bandages. 
scratched myself on a branch while I was searching in a thicket. Maybe this isn't safe, Jill says, stomping around in the woods like this. What if it was a bear? Bears don't like people, Ed says. We're making plenty of noise. We're fine. If it was a wild animal, like Mike said, I'm sure Paul startled it in the dark. Ed knows a lot about animals and what they do to their prey, but he keeps that information to himself. I don't see any place where he could have fallen, Krista adds. It must have been an animal. Mike pretends to swat her arm, but his attempt at humor earns him a steely glare from his girlfriend. Jill notices the interaction, though, and winks at Ed. His heart thrills at the sight. Jill seems to have perked up. Now, they share a secret. Another bond. The scratches on Ed's arm itch under the bandage, so he distracts himself by focusing on other things. Jill's unfettered body, primarily, which he glances at discreetly as they comb through the woods. For a while, he falls into step beside her, hoping to chat, but mostly they walk in silence, probing into the underbrush as if they know what they're doing. Eventually, they decide to halt the search and return to the camp. On the way back, something pale catches Ed's eye, contrasted against the dark brown and lush green vegetation. A man's leg. He stops and crouches, pretending to tie his bootlace, blocking the view from the others. He can hardly breathe, but his companions aren't looking around anymore. They've given up. After they pass, he peers into the bushes, admiring his handiwork. A broken bone protrudes through the calf. Vicious wounds and gashes adorn the limb and the toes are missing. It looks as if they've been chewed off. Without digging into the brush, he can't tell if the leg is still attached to the rest of the body or not. He hears someone approaching. Out of the corner of his eye, he sees Jill shuffling toward him. She can't see this. He rises quickly from his crouch and deliberately collides with her, knocking her off balance. He grabs her by the shoulders to steady her. For a long moment, they are almost embracing. Then Ed releases her and steps back, mumbling an apology. Didn't see you. Sorry. It's okay, Jill says. No harm done. She offers a crooked smile as Ed leads her away from the clump of bushes and its gruesome prize. What's that? she asks, pointing to the other side of the trail. What? Where? he replies. His heartbeat accelerates. There. It, it looks like... Jill crouches and rises. In her hands, she holds a hiking boot. Its laces are loose and its tongue flops like a leaf in the wind. Distinctive red stain defaces the tan material on one side. Is it? It looks like Paul's, she says, clutching it to her chest. What does this mean? They continued on to the camp in silence. Once there, Jill shows the boot to Mike and Krista. Could be anyone's, Ed says. It hasn't been outside long, Mike says. Krista glares at him. Still, you're right, it could belong to anyone. Ed rebuilds the fire and puts on the kettle for coffee. When it's ready, he pours a cup. Jill takes two sugars, he knows, and carries it to her. He rests one hand on her shoulder and is pleased when she doesn't pull away. He leads her to a wind-fallen tree and urges her to sit. He extracts the hiking boot from her hands and sets it on the ground beside her. They sip coffee and eat granola bars while discussing their course of action. Krista keeps trying to get a signal on her cell phone, but Ed knows that's a waste of time. They're a long way from civilization. Let's pack up camp and head back to town, Mike says. Is that wise? Ed asks. What if Paul's hurt? We can't just leave him here. Going back to town makes perfect sense, but Ed knows that emotion trumps logic. 
Jill rewards him with a look of gratitude and nods her agreement. Ah, yes, this might work out fine, he thinks. Slow and steady, that's how it has to go, especially during the next couple of days. We've already looked everywhere. Why stay? Mike asks. We need help. And the Carbon County Sheriff's Office in Red Lodge is the closest place to get that. He doesn't mention the boot, but they all seem to know what it means. Jill doesn't look at Mike. Instead, she turns to Ed. The pleading look on her face is easy to read. Let's stay tonight, Ed says. Get a fresh start in the morning. That way we can be absolutely sure he's not somewhere close by, hurt, waiting for us. He lets his voice trail off and watches Jill out of the corner of his eye. He knows the matter is settled in her mind, no matter what anyone else says. After further debate, Mike agrees, reluctantly, to wait until morning. Besides, Ed says, another group of hikers might come by and we could get them to ask for help when they reach town. He has other arguments ready, in case someone suggests the two of them stay behind while the others go down the mountain. But no one comes up with that idea. He refills Jill's cup from the pot brewing on the campfire. Their fingers touch briefly when he passes her the sugar. This trip was a bad idea, Krista says. It was Paul's, Mike says. All I did was research the trail. I wasn't blaming you. The hurt look on Mike's face softens. Paul always felt like he needed to prove something, Jill says. Her voice is soft and distant, as if she's recounting a dream. He thought we should climb Granite Peak. I had to talk him out of that. It might look easy from the trailhead, but a lot of people die there every year. The sun starts its descent behind the Absaroka Mountains to the west, turning the massive granite plateaus above the timberline into eerie lunar plains. At the same time, the full moon emerges from behind the Beartooth Mountains. Croaking toads begin to replace the wall of sound generated by birds and insects during the daytime. The texture of the air changes as it cools and grows darker. They're crossing from one territory into another. Though technically the moon is completely full for only an instant in time, Ed is vulnerable to its influence over three consecutive nights. Tonight it will be stronger, with the moon in full bloom. Ed wonders what Paul had planned for him up here in the mountains. There was something behind the unexpected invitation from his co-workers to join them on their outing. Some prank, no doubt, that would have made Ed the butt of their jokes for weeks to come. He saw Paul and Mike whispering in Mike's office, and could tell from the way Paul behaved that he had something up his sleeve. Despite this, Ed accepted their invitation because it afforded him the chance to spend a few days with Jill away from the office. There was a brief discussion about fixing him up with a woman from accounting, but Ed said he didn't mind going by himself so long as the others didn't mind having a fifth wheel along for the trip. Glad to have you, Eddie boy, Paul said. Glad to have you, Ed thinks now. The joke was on Paul. The timing couldn't have been better. There was a chance that nothing would happen during this full moon. His affliction didn't always control him, and sometimes he went for months immune to its effects. But being in the open enhanced the likelihood of a reaction. He loves the feeling of power that accompanies a night abroad, even though he never remembers what transpired. The next day he is always exhausted but euphoric. It's better than meditation. Maybe even better than sex. As darkness falls, they stoke up the fire and heat some food, though none of them have much interest in eating. Ed is hungry, but he will forage later. After their rudimentary meal, 
They sit in silence around the blazing campfire, sipping cocoa from tin mugs. The moon is enormous, bathing them in its silvery night. It won't be long now. Let's turn in early so we can get underway at first light, Ed says. The others agree. After they clean up, he hangs their food from the highest limb he can reach to keep it away from animals, then retreats to his tent and waits. He checks his watch, nearly ten o'clock. The seconds tick past. Deadwood crackles as an animal of some size lumbers past. Owls hoot in the distance. From the tent to his left, the muted but unmistakable sounds of lovemaking emanate. Two people seeking comfort in the face of despair. When he closes his eyes, he imagines Jill lying in the third tent, alone and awake, staring into the darkness. He can already feel the change beginning, even though midnight is over an hour away. He wishes he could control his impulses, that he could imagine a specific victim while lucid and then act upon it later. However, he has no more influence over his nocturnal excursions than he does over his dreams. Whatever will happen, will happen. It won't be his fault, not really. Nevertheless, he lies on his back and chants silently, Not Jill. Not Jill. Anyone but Jill. Not Jill. The blood coursing through his veins feels warmer. His skin feels matted with hair. His jaw aches. It's as if his very skeleton is transforming, and his musculature is adapting to these changes. His hands flex. His breathing grows shallow and rapid, his eyes narrow. The sounds of the night grow louder and more distinct. He can tell exactly where every bird is and what kind. The rustling he hears in the distance, that's a raccoon, attracted by the scent of their recent meal. Mike and Krista are finished their earnest fumbling, and Mike is now snoring. The world is so much more alive when he is like this. A tent flap zips open nearby. Seconds later, the amber glow of a flashlight beam sweeps across Ed's tent. Tentative footsteps approach, scraping through the leaves and branches. He freezes, like a predator suddenly detecting new prey. The footsteps stop outside his tent. The beam dips and sways erratically. The zipper tab at the bottom of his tent door rattles. A voice mumbles something that he can't make out. Then the zipper is drawn upward. A shadowy figure is framed in the moonlight. It's Jill. The neck of her loose shirt billows open as she stoops to peer inside. Ed's vision is sharp enough to make out every detail of her body. His breath catches in his throat. What is she doing here? She's in great danger, entering a lion's den. His muscles are coiled like springs, ready to pounce or flee. Ed! Ed! Jill's voice is a harsh whisper. You awake? Without waiting for an answer, she clambers inside and closes the zipper. He can feel her presence as she approaches on hands and knees, but he doesn't trust his senses. She can't be in here. In his tent. With him. Like this. Ed. His response is more of a growl than a word. Do you mind if I sleep in here tonight? Um, it's so, uh, um... She pauses. He's gone. I know it. That boot. She interprets his second growl as affirmation. When she crawls onto his inflatable mattress, he's jostled up and down and side to side. He wants to put one hand down against the ground to steady himself, but he's paralyzed. This can't be. 
It's the worst possible scenario, and yet it's something he has fantasized about for months. He can smell the hint of day's old perfume and sweat mingled with her natural female aroma. His hands continue to flex, the only part of his body that he dare move. He hears another zipper, this one very close, as Jill opens his sleeping bag and stretches out beside him, wrapping one arm across his body and nuzzling her face into his neck. Thank you, she says. Ed makes no sound in response. A few moments later, her respiration deepens. Her breath is warm and moist against his neck. Her arm weighs heavy on his chest. Conflicting thoughts and emotions cloud Ed's mind. In a second, he could roll Jill onto her back and have his way with her. His own special way, ripping his teeth into her soft pink neck and feeling her lifeblood spurt into his mouth. He could sink his clawed hands into the firm breasts that ride high on her chest. He could suck her fingers into his mouth one at a time, licking and caressing them before biting them off and swallowing them. But the moon doesn't yet have him completely in its thrall. Yet. There must be another way. Maybe he doesn't have to let the moon take control. He's allowed it in the past, but only because it gives him an excuse to give rein to his bloodlust. He doesn't need to let the moon take over. He is in charge. He's the master of his own destiny. To deal with a brute like Paul, Ed channeled his inner wolf. He pretended that fur grew out to cover his face and limbs. He imagined claws extending from his fingers. The teeth that sank into Paul's flesh were his own, but in his mind's eye, they were the curved lupine fangs of a predatory carnivore. With Jill, he can take a different approach, allowing his power to manifest itself in another form. Clearly, Jill was drawn here by his irresistible allure. She has offered herself up to him, yielding to his seductive charm. She wants to be taken by him, claimed by an infamous invincible creature of the night. Ed looks at her sleeping form with eyes accustomed to staring in the darkness. He notes the tiny lines at the corner of her eyes that appear when she offers one of her dazzling smiles. He sees her full lips, slightly parted as she breathes deeply. He is mesmerized by the pulse beating in her neck, so young, so strong. In his mind he imagines himself transformed into a dashing, handsome Nosferatu. When he smiles, he envisions his incisors extending beyond his other teeth, ready to plunge into Jill's succulent neck. He has the power to give her everlasting life. She will join him forever and, as master and mistress of the darkness, they will rule the night together. As he imagines this, he grows harder than ever before. In the morning, he won't remember much of what happens from this moment forward. He never does. Perhaps that's for the best, he thinks, as he lifts himself up on his elbows, turns, and lowers himself onto the warm-blooded woman at his side.